Well, it's time for another one of those Sunday morning sermons. So if you have your Bible, will you go with me to the book of Hosea? Yep, not Romans, Hosea. Hosea chapter 5. Now, if you don't know where it's at, that's okay. You got a table of contents. Just look there. It's between Daniel and Joel. Uh, I had to look it up, to be honest with you, <laughs> to find it in there. So I want to I want to talk to you from Hosea chapter 5 this morning. Hosea chapter 5. We're going to read the entire chapter as our uh, text today. Hosea chapter 5. Here's what the Bible says. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. But I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flock and herds they shall go to seek the Lord. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark upon them. I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he has determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like the lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning again, and we thank you for this privilege that you have given us to be in this place, Lord, the opportunity we have this morning to study your word and to engage with the truth of your word. Father, you have promised us through the person of the Holy Spirit that you would lead us into all truth. And we're asking this morning that you would use the person of the Holy Spirit to open our minds so that we can perceive, to open our ears that we may hear, to implant the truth of your word in our inner being, that it may change us, that we may be drawn to you, 
that the lost may be saved, that the saved may be challenged and encouraged. And Father, as always, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in order for us to understand what this passage is talking about, the first thing I think we need to make note of is that at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, they are no longer one united nation. At this point in their history in Hosea's day, they have already been divided. Ten tribes make up the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, and then you have the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And in this text, God is proclaiming judgment on both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, because both have egregiously sinned against God. Both have broken their covenant relationship with Almighty God. And God has shown us in this text today that there is a rot that is making its way through both Israel and Judah. And it's a putrefied rot of depravity. They are being... Lured away by the sweet smell of depravity that's being hawked by the spirit of the age in their culture. And God has demanded that they be held to account. Now, the passage of scripture that helps us understand the depth of their depravity and the reason for God's judgment I think is Hosea chapter 5 in verse 10. And in Hosea 5 and 10, if you remember, God says to Judah that your princes have become like those who have moved the boundaries or the landmarks. And because of that, he says, I will pour out my wrath like water. Now, if we're going to understand what this text is telling us and what God's intentions are, the first question that I have to ask myself is, what are these boundaries? What are these landmarks that God is talking about? Well, we're going to find out from God's word here in just a moment that these boundaries literally represent landmarks corner post, if you will, or fence lines that were put up by their forefathers to mark off their portion of inheritance in the land of promise. When God called Israel into the land of Canaan, he decreed to them that he was going to give them a land. And part of that land decree was that each tribe would have a specific plot of land in which they could flesh out what it meant to live in covenant relationship with Almighty God. And that translated to individual families of Israelites within each one of those tribes being allotted a portion of land. And so, if one were to remove that landmark or encroach upon that boundary line, that plot of land, in essence, it would be removing from that Israelite or stealing from that Israelite 
God's promised possession to them as it relates to his covenant promise to them in the land that he had called them to. And I think Moses helps us understand that in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 14, speaking for the Lord, he says, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So God verifies that these landmarks in a literal sense represented God's inherited promise to these tribes of Israel. So if the kings moved them or took them, then they were robbing these Israelites of God's promise and they were usurping God's authority in the land of promise. So the second question is, what is God saying to these kings? Is it merely because they have moved these landmarks that he's bringing this curse or this judgment? Well, God's declared it plainly again in Deuteronomy. I don't know if you remember the story, but um, I think it was Eba or Elba uh, on one mountain and Gerizim was the other mountain and God had brought the Levites to this place and a group of them was on one mountain and another group was on the other mountain and God called them to declare both the blessings and the cursings of those who would be honorable to the covenant, God would bless them. Those who broke the covenant, curses would come upon them and one of those curses was this moving of these landmarks. So is God merely saying that he's going to bring judgment on these kings because they moved these physical landmarks? Now, I don't doubt that that took place in the nation of Israel. It takes place today, right? When governments usurp authority and they take people's land and property. I don't doubt that the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel done those things. But is that all that God is talking about in this text today? Well, I think John Gill in his commentary helps us understand a little bit about the deeper understanding of what God is saying to these kings. Listen to what John Gill had to say. He said, the sense is that the princes of Judah did remove the bound, either in a literal sense by force and violence, they seized on the possessions and inheritance of their neighbors, which lay next to theirs, or in a figurative sense, they broke through all the bounds and limits and transgressed the laws of God and men by not being restrained by either. As we've already said, the former, I believe that happened in the nation of Israel, but it is the latter statement that I think is really underlying the context of what God is saying to Israel and Judah in Hosea chapter 5. It's not merely that they had moved the physical landmarks of, marks of these Israelites. It's that they had trampled over the spiritual and moral and holy boundary that God had set for the nation of Israel. In a word, they had transgressed the moral law of God. They had trampled it underfoot. Listen to what Matthew Henry had to say in his commentary. I think he puts a fine point on what God is saying to Israel in this text. Matthew Henry says this, They are like those that remove the bound or the ancient landmarks. God has given them his law to be a fence about his property, but they have sacrilegiously broken through it and set it aside. They have encroached even upon God's rights. 
They have trampled un, upon the distinction between good and evil. What's God saying to Israel? What's God saying to Judah? When God called them together in covenant relationship with him, God gave them a land to live in. God marked out not only physical boundaries in which they would live, but God laid out moral boundaries in which they should govern their lives. And those moral boundaries reflect, reflect the very character of Almighty God. And it is in light of the character of God that these people who were called to be the people of God should live their lives and govern their morality. And what has happened? Israel and Judah have overrun God's moral boundary. They had gone off. The, the, the text tells us that they had gone deep. The ESV says deep into slaughter. Other translations say deep into depravity. They had so trampled underfoot God's moral law that they were in the cesspool of sinfulness in the nation. They were unfaithful to their covenant to God. Not only that, if you remember, there's another verse later on in this text that told us that they followed after filth. The, the ESV says, another way to say it is they followed after their own human desire and passion. Isn't that what sin is anyway? Isn't that what the prophet tells us? Isaiah, we have all gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. That's the, that's the epitome of sinfulness. We want to do it our way rather than God's way. And so this is what God is bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel for, upon the nation of Judah, because they had transgressed the moral bounds that God had set up to guard them and guide them as they lived their lives in covenant with him. Now that leads to a third question, at least in my mind, and probably you're thinking that question too. So What? What does that have to do with me, right? This is Old Testament stuff, right? This, this, is, this is Israel back in the day. Hosea, I didn't know about him until this morning when you mentioned this book, right? Well, what does all this have to do with me? After all, aren't we uh, outside of the bounds of law? H hadn't God rescued us from that? I is this even relevant to us today? And if it is, how so? Well, I'm glad you asked. In order for us to understand the aspect of the law, you and, I, you and I need to be clear that God has laid out in Israel three categories of his law. The first category, and not, they're not in any particular order, the first category has to do with the ceremonial law that God had placed upon Israel. Now, this ceremonial law had to do with how Israel was to worship their God all the sacrifices and the feast and the festivals. Now we know, because we've studied the book of Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews told us that this ceremonial law was a shadow of things to come. It was a shadow that was ultimately fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ. So this ceremonial law is no longer binding because Christ has fulfilled everything that the ceremonial law was pointing to. And what God demands of us today in relation to the ceremonial law is for us to place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then the second aspect of uh, Hebrew law in their theocracy that God laid down for them was the idea of civil law. And civil law had to do with 
how they were taxed, if you will. The Bible calls it a tithe, but there's at least three aspects of the tithe in, in Israel. We don't have time to, to delineate all of those, but God used that to get money for the priests, to get money for the government, to get money for the poor. And then there were other aspects of that civil law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Other aspects of the civil law, don't eat this and you can't eat that, right? And all indications are when we move to the New Testament, the New Covenant, that these concepts of the civil law, again, have been fulfilled and have been really uh, dismissed on the greater humanity. We know at least the idea of the food laws are gone. Why? Because what did Jesus or what did Jesus say to Peter when he was on the rooftop? You know, when he was hungry about lunchtime and God let down this sheet in front of Peter and says, go kill and eat. And Peter looks at it and says, hey, I can't go and eat these animals. They're unclean. I hadn't eaten any of this stuff all of my life. And God says to him, don't call unclean what I have made clean, right? And really that was a picture of what God was saying about the gospel going to the Gentiles. But in that, God was telling us that this civil law, it was really for the nation of Israel to set them apart in their context in history. And it's not binding in total on us today. And that leads to the third aspect of God's law. And that's the moral law. That's what you and I call the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You remember Charlton Heston on the mountain? God wrote it on the stones, right? Uh, The Ten Commandments, those ten words uh, that relate to how we are to worship and love God and how we are to love and interact with one another. Jesus summarized them in Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. You remember when they came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to them, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor and as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law on these two commandments, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. What was he saying? Everything that God has been trying to teach you throughout history hinge on the Ten Commandments, the moral code. Why? Because the moral code, the Ten Commandments, reflects the character of Almighty God. It reflects the the holiness and the justice of God. And it shows us how we exhibit God's holiness and his character in this world as we worship him and as we relate to one another in light of the holiness and justice of God. So the question still remains, is this binding on us? I think Paul's made it clear to us in Romans. We've been in Romans for the last few months, right? Paul's made it clear that the law is not abandoned in the sense of the moral code. He's telling us it is our schoolmaster. It shows us that we can't live up to it apart from Jesus Christ. But when we come to faith in Christ for the first time in our lives, we have within us, via the Holy Spirit, the ability to live in light of the Ten Commandments. And it is binding. See, the Ten Commandments, the moral code of God, this moral law, transcends nations and cultures and generations. All of humanity is bound by the moral code of God. Hadn't God told us that he wrote that on our hearts? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? It's not because men don't know. 
It's because God has revealed himself even in creation and he has imprinted in our conscious the construct of right and wrong, which is related to the holy character and the moral law of God. The problem is that in spite of our knowing, we suppress the truth. And that's why God is pouring out his wrath right now on humanity. And that's why God has appointed a day of wrath for all of humanity. Listen to what the founder's ministry has to say about this issue of the moral law in an article on their website. They say, the moral law, which is the pattern of God's image in man, ought to be Excuse me. Ought to correspond with the eternal and archetypal law in God, since it is the copy and shadow in which He has manifested His justice and holiness. Hence, we cannot conform ourselves to the image of God, to the imitation of which Scripture so often exerts us, except by regulating our lives in accordance with the precepts of this law. This law is immutable and perpetual. Therefore, the moral law must necessarily also be immutable. What are they saying? The moral law reflects God's character. God's character is unchanging. Therefore, The moral law is unchanging and perpetually binding because God, even today, what does Peter tell us? Be holy as he is holy. How do I know what the holiness of God looks like apart from his word, apart from his character being revealed to me in the moral code? God still holds us to that standard. Now, just by living that standard doesn't make you right with God because you can't live that standard apart from the redeeming work of Christ in your life. But when we come to faith in Christ, God demands that we live in accordance with his holiness. And right now, God demands every human being on planet Earth that has ever lived and that will ever live to live in this holiness. And if they will not repent of their sinfulness and come to faith in Christ and be obedient to the Lord, judgment will come. Don't take my word for it. Take the Apostle Paul's word for it. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, if you remember, is where Paul's on Mar. uh, He's in uh, Athens. And in Athens, he's dropped off there because he's run out of uh, Ephesus. And as he's there in Athens, he's waiting for some more disciples to come, some more Christians to come. And while he's waiting, he's there in the marketplace. And in the marketplace, one of my favorite verses there is that, hey, he was sharing the gospel with just whoever happened to show up. And some of those who happened to show up were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they were intrigued because they say, hey, this guy's babbling about some new stuff we've never heard before. Uh, And some of them wanted to hear some more about this new stuff. So they invited him to Mars Hill where all the philosophers gathered. And he was given the opportunity to share Christ with these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. You remember the unknown, the statue to the unknown God? He starts right there and points them to Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that sermon in the book of Acts, 
He declares to them that God has demanded every man repent because he has set aside a day of judgment in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says in Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I'm here to tell you, if what God said about Israel in Hosea chapter 5 and what God said about Judah in Hosea chapter 5 demanded his judgment, how much more is God's judgment demanded today on every nation on planet Earth? And we don't have to look very far, right? We can look in our own culture and in our own nation. If we as a people, if you can't see that we have trampled underfoot the moral code of God, if you can't see that we have blurred the lines between what is good and evil, then you are blind or ignorant or both. God is bringing his judgment on this nation and this world in this moment. How do we know? Because Paul said one of the displays of God's judgment in a people is that he turns them over to a debased mind and they continue to go deeper into depravity as our text says today and they willfully follow after filth god's judgment is coming and he demands repentance and faith god is not sitting back on his throne and begging and hoping and pleading that you will come to him he is and he is demanding that you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ else you will be judged by a holy, righteous God. But here's what you and I need to also know. That same God that is demanding repentance and faith, that same God is going to bring judgment on those who are unrepentant is the same one that did not leave us helpless and hopeless. Just look at the last verse in our text today. Because if you read this text in Hosea, it seems as though God is done with Israel. But there's a glimmer of hope right at the end. Look at it in verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt. What is that? It's repentance. And they seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. God gave them a glimmer of hope, didn't he? He's done the same for you and for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? God has not left us hopeless. He's not left us helpless. He has given us Jesus Christ who has accomplished what we could not accomplish. And he's calling us to repent and believe in Christ. In doing so, we can escape the judgment that is to come. And one of the primary means that God uses... 
to accomplish this task of redemption, to accomplish this ministry of reconciliation that he's called all believers to, is by means of sharing the gospel. What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17? We'll get there eventually. He says, faith comes how? By hearing and hearing how? By the word of Christ, or if you're the King James Version, the word of God. And one of the primary vehicles that God uses to share this word of God, this gospel message of Jesus Christ, is his church. His church that is manifest all over this globe in local geographic positions on this planet. We call them local churches, right? And God, 140 years ago, in his providence, in his plan, called together a group of baptized believers and planted a church in a little community called Friendship. And we know that church as Friendship Baptist Church. God planted this church on purpose for a purpose. To share with a lost and dying world, a world that is broken and in bondage to sin, to share with that world in this community the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. 51,100 days this church has been in existence. At a minimum, if you just count just Sunday morning, at a minimum, 14,560 sermons have been proclaimed from this place. And we know it's more than that. It's no accident that this church is here. And I'm here to tell you, it's no accident that you and I are in this place today. Paul helps us understand it again in that same chapter 17 in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 27, listen to what Paul says to those Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. God determined when you were going to be born. It's no accident that you live in this century at this time. That's by the divine providence of God. And the boundaries of their dwelling place. It's no accident that you and I live in the area that we live in, in the time that we live in, because God has determined when we would live and where we would live. So it's no accident that you are in this place. And why did God do that? Listen to the end of that verse. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. And God has been proclaiming the message of the cross for over 2,000 years. It began with Abraham. You remember the Bible. Paul told us already. God in his providence preached the gospel to Abraham. And he's preached the gospel throughout history. And in this place, he planted this place here to be a place that would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the question arises, what does that look like for us? 
Praise the Lord. There's 140 years of history in this place. There's been a foundation built. But you know what? I can't live in 140 years ago. I can't live in tomorrow. Nor can you. I can only live in this day and in this moment and trust God for the next day to come, right? So what does it look for us today? Praise God for 140 years. But what about now? You are here on purpose for a purpose. This place is here on purpose for a purpose. What is that purpose? What does it look like? Well, I want to, con- I want to, I want to bring this to a conclusion by sharing with you the answer to two questions. I think we need to understand. What is the church in general and this church in particular called to be by God? And then secondly, how does that look like or what does that look like for us as Friendship Baptist Church in this community? Well, it's easy. We already know. First, we need to think about three aspects. What is the church called to be? What is this church called to be? We need to look at our mission, our ministry, and our focus. And God gives it to us clearly, right? In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 is the mission. It's in other places in the Bible, but that's probably the premier text about what the mission of the church is all about. And it starts off with Jesus before he ascends to the Father after he had been resurrected from the dead. He stands before those believers that day, before his apostles that day, and he declares to them all authority. Not some authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Right? God in Christ is reigning right now. You and I need to understand that. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's coming back one day. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom. But right now he is in control. He is on his throne and he is reigning and all authority has been given to him. And it's in that authority that this great commission comes. Because the next thing out of his mouth is because he has all authority in heaven and in earth, he says to those disciples and he's saying to us today, go therefore. And make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And then he gives a promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is this mission all about? In the authority of Christ, God has given us this mission. He's called us. There's one verb in that that whole sentence. One verb. And that verb is make disciples. And that making disciples is shaped up or framed out by three participles in that text. The first participle is go. It could really be translated as you are going. I love that idea behind that word. Because we have this wrong idea that we think every one of us, you know, has to be a Billy Graham if we're going to be an evangelist. Right? God calls people to that. God sends people all over this world and praise the Lord for that. But the majority of Christians, just like the majority of Israelites, they would live out their covenant relationship with God in the inherited boundary that God had placed them in. The same for you and for me. Most of us are going to live out our faithfulness to God in the place that God has allotted for us to exist and in the time he's allotted for us to exist. So as we are going in that place... Make disciples. 
Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to travel around the world while people need to go around the world. But what God has called you and I first and foremost to do is right now in our context as we go, make disciples. What does he mean by make disciples? Make disciples has to do with evangelizing the lost and discipling those who are saved. Isn't that really what's the implication of this text? What's baptism all about? Baptism is a public declaration of someone's faith in Christ. It unites them with the body of Christ, in particular the local body of Christ that they join. Through baptism, we declare that we have bowed our knee to Christ, that we have understood that we are sinners, that we are guilty, that we need God's help. And God has helped us in Jesus Christ. We repent of our sin. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. And we declare that when we step into the waters and we say we are buried, right, with Jesus. And we are raised to walk in newness of life. So it's bringing people into the fellowship through evangelism. And it's teaching them to be obedient to the commands of Christ that are found in his word. That's discipleship. It's not evangelism or teaching. It's both. Right? And what's the, what is the scope of this? Again, I've said most of us are going to do it in our time, in our century, in our location. But what's the overall scope? The overall scope Panta ta ethnos. Go make disciples of all ethnic groups. Most translations say all nations or all peoples. But it's literally every ethnic group. Why? What is God? He's already told us in Romans, right? The gospel is for the Jew and the Gentile. And here's a reality for you. If you're not Jew, then you're Gentile. Now, Gentiles have a lot of ethnic groups wrapped up in that, right? But the gospel is for every ethnic group, every people on earth. And we are to be about proclaiming that. And guess what? In America, what does God do? He brings the world to us, doesn't he? So we have an opportunity to fulfill this mission even in this context of friendship and tallacy and eclectic and Wetumpka and Elmore County or Alabama and move out from there. All right, quickly, we got to go. I know there's food waiting. Our ministry. I think James tells us in a very succinct way. Verse 1, chapter, tw- chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and, and the Father, uh, before God the Father, is this to visit orphans, widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What are we to be about in ministry? We're to be about a people who are trying our best to help those who are truly alone and helpless. Isn't that what the category of widows and orphans is talking about? Those who are alone and helpless. They need us. We need to minister to them. We need to love on them, right? One way we try to do that is next door, right? But we need to, we need to become better at that as a body and as a people. And don't miss that last phrase. I gotta say it because it's there. We must Keep ourselves unstained from the world. Be in the world, but not of the world, right? Be holy, for he is holy. That leads us to our function. Our function is this, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Four things that the early church was doing. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. What they found in God's Word. They were students of the Word. They devoured the Word. They come together over the Word. So while so many times we think that worship is just about music, it's just as much about God's spoken Word, God's written Word. We must be people of the book. And secondly, look what he says in this text if you are over there. The fellowship. Coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews can say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. We are familia. We need to come together as a family of faith. This is not just some social gathering. This is not just meant to be, I check my religious box at the the beginning of the week. This is about a body of believers who have unified themselves under the purpose of God in Christ Jesus, who love one another and are working together to build one another up and engage this culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the third thing he said in there is breaking of bread. The communion. Yeah, we talk about eating back here, but when you think about breaking of bread in the book of Acts, it almost always has to do with celebrating the communion. Remembering what Christ's done for us in his broken body and his shed blood. It's central to who we are. The gospel ought to be the central focus of who we are as a people. That's one of the reasons you hear me talking about the gospel quite a lot. And then the last thing, don't miss it. We've been trying. We've been trying. We got to do better. The last one. What else were they devoted to? Prayer. 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 You know, every great awakening that ever started in this world was started because people gathered together to pray. The power behind Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London was what he called the engine room. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there was someone in the basement of that church praying. If we want to see God's power manifest in our lives and in this place, it's going to happen when we honor what Jesus Christ said when he said, my house, my father's house should be a house of prayer. And I'm talking to the preacher just like I'm talking to you. We can't skimp on that. I got more to say, but we'll, we'll wrap it up. We're trying to structure ourselves to accomplish this. 140 years ago, God, on purpose, for a purpose, planted this body of believers. And I've already told you, there's no accident that we are still here. There's no accident that you are in this place. It is by God's divine providence that every one of us are here. November will be two years that God called my wife and I to this place to be your pastor and your fellow laborer in the field. And I want to tell you, we are all in, okay? Unless you guys fire me or the door's shut or I just croak 
I mean, that, that's how I plan to leave is when I die, okay? Hopefully it'll be dropping dead on this podium while I'm preaching. That won't be fun for you. <laughs> it'll be doing what I love to do, right? But I'm here to tell you, we can't do it by ourselves. We need your help. We need you to be all in. We need you to look at the pews beside you and people who once sat there that are still around, that are still able. We need you to challenge them to be all in. God has called us for a purpose for such a time as this. People are dying every day and going to hell. They need to hear the gospel. And it's only going to happen when you and I are all in on the mission that God's called us. For some of you, that means you need to take the first step. You need to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Because you cannot be all in on the mission until you've bowed your knee to Jesus Christ. For some of you, that means you need to take the second step. You've never been baptized. You've never publicly professed your faith through baptism and taken that step of obedience. I've got to be honest. I know there are people in this room who are all in. I understand that. But quite frankly, there are more people in this room, at least from my perspective, and more people who claim to be members of this church. You're just trying to skate your way into glory. Right? You're trying to ease on in. Well, I'm calling you today. I'm asking you today. Don't be a bench warmer. Put all your chips in. Let's go out being everything that we can be for the Lord. And I'm talking to me just like I'm talking to you. I've got to do better. You've got to do better. And the only way we're going to do that is if we will bow our wills to the will of the Father. And whatever the sacrifice is, right? We love our comfort, right? We love our happiness. I was listening to somebody the other day. They said the main meaning in life is to be happy. No, it's not. No, it's not. The main focus of your life as a believer in Christ is to be faithful to the God who has called you. And if you do that, in that you will find happiness, although the circumstances might not always be pleasant. But God's calling us to be all in. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a little song for you. Y'all heard it before, and it's nothing special, but it has this sentiment to it. Right? Will you Stand on the firing line with us. Instead of a, a, a normal invitation, th this is going to be the end of our service. I'll say the blessing after that, so when we get down there, uh, you can just get in line and start eating. But if you need to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, come get me, right? Don't, don't, wait, don't worry about eating. You can do that anytime. Come get me, and I'll show you what it means to be a follower of Christ. Or if you have any other decisions, you need to pray. Come find me or find somebody else you're comfortable with and talk with them.